0: Um, One thing I've learned, uh, my my oldest is uh, 11, will be 12 this next year, and, you know, while, you know, 12 years of parenting doesn't make me the the resident expert, uh, one thing I do know is, one thing I've discovered, Sarah and I, we joke about this, uh, much of parenting is trying to convince your kids that you know a thing or two about life and they really don't know very much. Um, you know, we, we joke about this because it, it comes up in the type of foods they should and should not eat. No, you don't need to, to pound, you know, the, the three bags of candy that you've curated between Halloween and Christmas. Uh, you don't need to eat that all the time. Uh, you need to eat your fruits and vegetables. you need to do these things you you don't need to every time you get birthday money from grandparents. you don't need to immediately go and blow it on 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 something at, at, at Target or Walmart. You should actually think strategically about how you use it. You should save some, give some, spend some, whatever that may that may be for you. Um, you know uh, listen I play golf. Uh, Many of you know that about me. Uh, Love to play. Played in college. um, You know, played competitively for a long time. I know a thing or two about golf. uh, And something I have a conversation with, my oldest in particular, because he is into golf right now. Um, You know, I, I know a thing or two about the golf swing. And so I'll be sitting there talking with him at the driving range, trying to help instruct him, teach him, and I'll say, hey, you're, you know, you're, try doing this. It's, it looks like you're doing this. Dad, I'm not doing that. No, I promise you you're doing, you're doing it. I'm not doing it. Okay, let me pull up my cell phone. Let me video it so I can show you. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I was doing that. Um, you know, uh, and, and so, um, you know, or they'll say, mom and dad, you have no idea. How hard I've been working today at school, or how, how hard uh, all the work that I've been doing this week at school. And I'm like, son, you know, I, listen, it's not as if I didn't do, you know, 15, 20 years of schooling myself. I know what it's like to, to put in work at school. And those of you who have parents of teenagers, um, you know a thing or two of what this is like. Uh, they think you're annoying. They don't think you have any value to add to what's going on in their life, any value to the situations that they are encountering, experiencing in this life. While, you know, the culture is different, it is different today than it was when you were growing up, uh, and it, it, but the reality is, is true. Teenagers haven't really changed. You know, parents are annoying, and you don't really have much value to bring to my life. Uh, and it's not until they're 28 or 30 and they have mortgages, they have jobs, they have children of their own, they begin to realize, you know, my parents, they kind of knew what was going on. They know a thing or two, and then you all of a sudden they become cool again and, they, and you, you want to spend much time with them and you begin to ask them questions. Um, parenting is really wrapped up in helping us see that there is pride. There's pride in us all. There's pride in our children. Uh, And this kind of pride, it it lives in all of us if we're really, really honest with ourselves. Uh, There is, uh, this is similar to to what is happening in our passage in this section of where we find ourselves in the book of Job. Uh, Job is in a place in life where pride is beginning to bubble up uh, and he's going to be reminded of his misguided uh, and misunderstanding of God. Uh, now, the book of Job, as we've seen, is uniquely a book that deals with suffering. Uh, we really see two functions of suffering in the book of Job. First, when we suffer, we display the, 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 the ideas that we would I- uh, display the infinite worth and wisdom and, and glory of God despite our circumstances. And the second main function that we see in the text is that, that suffering is used in order to, to strip us of any remaining pride that is in our life. That 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 it might be purged from within our lives. Pride, as we know from the text, from what the scriptures teach us, that pride is the root of all evil. It's when we think we know better than God. You know, this comes from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Uh, They got us into this situation. I can't blame it on them. I bear the, 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 the mark of this, right? Rejecting, ultimately, they reject the provision of God take care, uh, and and they begin to take this, their situation, their, their, what they want into their own hands. We, and they begin to say, you know, basically, we have a better plan. We have a better idea of what would make life better. What would, you know, what would, what would be good. If I were God, this is what I would do. And, and, and God is holding out on me and all this kinds of stuff. Life will go better if we know the difference between good and evil. So they, Partake of the fruit of the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they became independent, proud, self-reliant humans. uh, Which everybody in this room, except by the grace of God. Listen, we are arrogant. We are selfish. Pushy. We will have it our way kind of people. Even the nicest, sweetest little lady in this room uh, are arrogant to the root. And, oh, men, I'm not going to leave you out in this. Uh, I'm not going to let you off the hook. We are arrogant, too. Notice I use the word we. God has to do the same massive work to overcome what we are and all of us which is proud, vain, selfish human beings. I've seen it in my life uh, in every human being, even the most godly people that I know. And I could name some, but that would be a terrible thing for me to do right now. But to this point, Job's been lying. Uh, He's been lying in unrelieved misery for months. Sores all over his body. Seven sons, three daughters dead, all of his wealth taken away. A wife who temporarily at least has given up the faith and suggests that that he should curse God. And he has three friends who start well and finish badly. And he At the beginning, he also starts really well. You know, I don't know if you remember this from chapters 1 and 2, where Job 1.21 says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That doesn't sound like somebody who's struggling. That sounds like somebody who has a deep, rich understanding of who God is. Job uh, 2.10, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Then it begins to get dragged out, doesn't it? These friends of his begin to simply deal with his suffering in terms of, well, if, if you're good, then you're going to be blessed. And if you're not good, then you're going to be cursed by God. And so, Job, that's clearly what's happening with you in your life. Your prosperity, your wealth, your, your sense of well-being, it's all going away. It must mean there's something deeply rooted inside of you. There, you, there must be some sort of sin that's there. And for 29 chapters, uh, Job got weaker and weaker until it ended with in the silence of Zophar and was provided to be... You know, he was provided to be wrong, and so it didn't hold. And then, uh, this man named Elihu comes on in his young, righteous indignation, right? He's angry. He poses the, the problem very differently. He says, Job, you're wrong. They're wrong. They're wrong because you showed they were wrong. But, but you're also wrong, and you're wrong in two ways. You're wrong to talk with excessive uh, about your excessive righteousness, about yourself. You overstated the case, though you, you're, you're, you're a good man. You are a good man, but you've overstated your righteousness. And you're wrong to call God your enemy. He's not your enemy. And you called him your enemy, and you dishonored him in that. So now... Elihu is finished, he has said what he has to say, neither Job nor God criticize him, and at the end of his speeches, uh, he hears and he sees a thunderstorm gathering, literally, a thunderstorm coming in, and this is the approach of God, and God is going to speak out of a whirlwind, and I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know how he did it, um, but Way back then, before we had the Bible, before they had the Bible, God would speak to his people as we see in Hebrews chapter 1. He spoke to his people in many different ways. And here, here he comes. He's going to speak out of a thunderstorm. Elihu has just spoken for six chapters It's as though Elihu had something to say, and then now God uh, has something to say. They both had something to say. First, Elihu speaks, and then God speaks. But God speaks to Job, even though that the last six chapters have been the voice of Elihu. So beginning in in verse 1 of chapter 38, we read, Then the Lord answered Job, out of a whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And you might think this is, that, that that's a criticism of Elihu because he, he's just spoken for six chapters. So, you know, maybe saying, so God is asking Job, who is that? Who is that? That's not the way we should understand this verse. He means, Job, who are you? To darken counsel without understanding. That's what he's asking. How how do we know that? We know that because we'll see in chapters 42, God repeats this same thing. Who is this that hides uh, counsel without knowledge? Um, That's God's word to Job, and Job answers him back. I have uttered, where he answers him and says, I have uttered what I do not understand. (laughs) God is not criticizing Elihu. He's speaking to Job. Elihu is done and he's out of the way. Now God, uh, God got his turn to deal with Job. And he says, Job, what's going on here? And, and, and the way you've spoken in the last 29 chapters, we're going to deal with this. And for a while, you were doing so well, but, but have said some really questionable things. So you have darkened counsel by words without knowledge, and and now you get to hear God. And we have a lot of chapters here uh, of God talking, really uh, verses, or chapters 38 through 42, this big discourse now of God speaking to Job. Uh, I was assigned chapters 38 and Really, chapters 39 really goes so well. And I, I was really wrestling with how much do I actually read here. Uh, I began to think through, do I actually you know, read just a certain portion here, a certain portion here? And I just thought, you know what? This is the words of God. Let's just read it. Let's read it. And I hope you feel the full effect, the full effect of the scriptures, hearing God speak this morning. Beginning in verse 3. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Right? So for, think about this. God, or Job has had God on trial. <laughs> it's now Job's turn to be cross-examined. He's saying, get ready, son. Put on your coat and tie. Here I come. Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, surely you know. You hear the sarcasm through this. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. You or, or, or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And, and, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or, or who shut in the seas with doors? When it burst out of the womb. When I made clouds its garment. And thick, in thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, "Thus far shall you come, and no further." And here shall you, here shall your pride, your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since uh, your days began, and caused the dawn uh, to know its place? that it might take hold the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it it is changed it, it it is changed like clay under the seal and its and its features stand out like a garment from their wicked from the wicked their light is withheld and their and their uplifted arm is broken have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it if you know. Declare it if you know all this. Where is the way of the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness that you may take, uh, you may, you may take to it its territory? And that you may discern the paths of its home? You... You know, you were there, you you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of snow, or have you seen the storehouses of hell? Have you reserved the time of trouble for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed? Or where is the east wind is or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has the cleft, a channel for the torments of rain, or the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From from whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades uh, or, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth Maseroth in their season?" Or can, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that, that, uh, that they may go and say, and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts. Or give an understanding to the mind. Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens? Then the, the dust runs into a mass. And the clods stick uh, fast together. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens. Or lie in wait in their thick, in the thicket. In their thicket? Who provides for the raven, its prey, whenever its young ones cry to God for help and wonder about the lack of food? He goes on and on. Chapters 38 is obviously like this. Chapter 39 is like this. Chapters 40, 41 are like this. God interrogates Job giving him this Socratic education of questions, where where it's question after question after question is is asked through this this thunderous power of God himself. And Job discovers, discovers that he had misjudged himself and God. As I was thinking about this, Uh, What was happening here in this passage, I was reminded of something uh, Calvin said in the beginning of his institutes. John Calvin began his institutes like this. Nearly all the knowledge we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth, the other is not easy to discern. He goes on to say, It is certain that a man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from, uh, from uh, contemplating God to scrutinizing himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous, upright, wise, holy. This pride is innate in all of us unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not to the Lord who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Job had misjudged God and himself. Through these questions then, God revealed Job's sin to him. Job had forgotten that God was greater than Job. You can see that in the very questions that God is asking Job. Job's pride was causing him to think too highly of himself. And if we're honest, this is true of all of us. And it's you know it's from this that I want to make a couple of points this morning. The first is, ever since the fall, humanity has thought too highly of itself. We are all guilty of this. We want to say, God, it's not fair. I've done this, I've done that, I deserve so much better. We might even be tempted to say, well, if I were God, I I would do things differently. We see this in the fall, right? Adam and Eve, they thought they were better than God. They thought they knew better, thought God was holding out on them. So they came up with this scheme. You know, Paul, the New Testament... Paul tells us not to think too highly of ourselves; that we ought to, not not to think of ourselves too highly of ourselves. John's warning is: uh, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we do not know who I am as a person born with a sin nature, I cannot really know what it means to be a person born again. Because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, his son, not on me, and not on you. And so who who are you? Who are we? We are sinners. We are people born with a, a sin nature that makes all of us capable of the worst and deserving uh, deserving. God's wrath apart from the grace and mercy of God we are all guilty of thinking we know better than God this reminds me of a former church that I was serving at I can't remember exactly if it was a Sunday morning or if it was a Wednesday night we were teaching a class and I began to make an illustration about um, the fallen nature of man. And I said, All, look no further than the preschool. Go down the preschool hallway, walk into the two-year-old class, and you will see um, that the curse, the mark of sin, it makes its way no farther than the two-year-old class, right? I said, this is where we get the name Terrible Twos from, right? And I just remember uh, a lady who... Served in the nursery. She had been serving and she had been teaching this two year old Sunday school class for over 30 years. She stormed down front and she said to me, That is not true. Two year olds are not sinners. They are not sinners. They, they, they are precious, sweet, like there, there is no, no mark of sin on them at this age. You know, at that point, I'm just like, okay, that's not what the scriptures teach. Uh, I I hear you, uh, but but we had just a, a friendly discourse, and, you know, we talked about it for a while. But the reality is, we are all born with a sin nature, every one of us. And this is our tendency. We begin to think too highly of ourselves and even others. In her case, we begin to think, we, we have all the answers. We begin to, to, to fall into this never-ending spiral of human philosophy. And you know what the scriptures teach about human philosophy, right? Um, Proverbs 14 says, There is a way that seems right to man, and in the end, it leads to death. If we're really honest with ourselves and with God... We should admit our arrogance. We think we know better. Every time we sin, we're saying we know better than God. Uh, but, but not only do we not rightly see ourselves, we often fail to see God for who he really is. And this brings us to the next point. Since the fall, humanity has been guilty of thinking too small or too little about God. What God was telling Job by these questions is that there is no one else with God's unique power that has as the creator of all his unique authority. Job needed to be reminded of the greatness of God. He needed to be reminded of the the greatness and the vastness and the wonder of God. Throughout these verses, God displays Job's utter powerlessness. You know, uh, you look at uh, verse 2 of 38. God describes Job. Who is this that, has dark, that, that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Then in verse 18, God asks, Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare it. Talk to me, Job. If you, if you, if you know these things, talk to me. You know, obviously Job had not comprehended the vast expanse of the universe. Later in verse 34, he then asks, Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Well, in fact, Job had not. Did not have power to do that. Then in chapter 39, where God describes his sovereignty over uh, uh, all all the created things of the earth. And he, he describes all these animals, right, all the things that he has power over. Verse 9, he says, Is the wild ox willing to serve you? The answer is no. Job 39, 26, Is it by your understanding that, hawks soar, that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? The answer is no. The hawk does not take flight based on Job's wisdom. These questions are obviously rhetorical, right? God is making things very clear. Job is a wee little man. And he was making it very clear that Job does not have the power and might to save himself from the pain and anguish of his suffering. Any notion of self-salvation is entirely ridiculous and worthy of being mocked as God here for educational purposes is in a way mocking Job. You see the sarcasm by revealing himself. God reveals the, the highest knowledge that Job lacked, true and certain knowledge about God. This had been questioned by Job, and even sinfully doubted by him. And now God reveals himself in this self-revelation of God as he shows that he is something other than man in both his power and his knowledge. God is not just revealing something about his mystery, but he's also revealing something about his mercy. You know, how kind of God to tell the truth about himself, about us. God didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that with us. In the next couple of chapters, we will see that, 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 that God, is, God is free. He's under obligation to no one. His goodness to us is always his mercy. This is what God is teaching Job in these few chapters, even in his sarcastic mockery of Job. Look at verses 19 through 21 again. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? Surely, you know, you were born. That's sarcasm. Job wasn't born. Surely, you know, you you were born. You were born then. And the numbers of your days is so great, Job. You see how even God's mockery is instructive of Job for his good. The fact that God is even speaking and revealing himself to Job is an act of mercy. Job could not require God to do it. God didn't owe it to Job. Yet God chooses to reveal himself to him. And God takes this initiative even when Job was sinfully questioning him. Right? So so God's revelation did not come to him after he repented. Now this is when Job is in a heap of ashes. He's disgusting to people. They have forsaken him. He has not yet repented of his sins. The ways that, that he has accused God of injustice, it is then that God speaks to Job. Do you see how different God is from us? (laughs) How often do we wait to show love to someone only after they have acted in love towards us? How rarely do we, like God here, take a loving and merciful initiative towards someone even when they are in the act of opposing us and even slandering us? That's what... God did here with Job. Because this God is a merciful God. Listen, if you're not a Christian, I wonder what you see and understand as the primary differences between God and you. That's what God is teaching Job in this section. He's teaching the difference between himself and Job. I wonder if you think that God is kind of in your debt. If he owes you something, maybe for something evil, maybe for, some, for maybe some evil that you've suffered or something good you have done, maybe even for being here this morning. My Christian brothers and sisters, notice that in the Bible, the greatest difference between people are never racial Economic, age, gender differences. The greatest difference between people, the one enduring difference between people is that whether or not they know this God and understand themselves. Understand our true need for him to act on our behalf. We need God. Job needed God. And And Job was beginning to miss this, and and, and God reminded Job of it. Which brings us to the final point. A high view of God is foundational for the Christian faith and for our spiritual growth. A high view of God is foundational for the Christian faith and for our spiritual growth. I'm reminded of my own gospel story, testimony. I made a profession of faith when I was eight years old. You know, I prayed the prayer, walked the aisle. My friends were being baptized at the time, so I did the same thing. And I can tell you from eight until 17, I had no real desire for the things of the Lord, no desire to walk in godliness, no desire really to be around his people. I had most people really completely fooled. Honestly, I had my own cell phone. It wasn't until I was 18 that student pastor began to disciple me, take me to the scriptures, and for the first time I began to see my own the weight of my own sin. And um, and understand substitution, that, that Jesus lived a perfect life in my place as my substitute and and to understand that cross was meant for me. But he stood in my place. And, 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 and I just, you know, at the time, I didn't know the language. But, for the, you know, what was really happening was God had awakened my heart to see and understand the gospel for the first time. And I became this little sponge. If you had handed me a book from Joel Osteen, I would have read it. And I would have soaked it up. And I would have assumed that it was true. But by God's provision, I wasn't handed books by Joel Stane. I'm not listen. I'm not here to bash Joel Stane, okay. But um, by God's provision, I was not handed theological cotton candy. My uh, this young lady that I was talking with, her husband or her her dad, excuse me, her dad. Wow, I almost got in real trouble there. Her dad um, loved theology, loved good books, and he handed me two books. And so here I am, an 18-year-old, eager to read and see anything, anything you give me. And he hands me two books, one book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer, another another book by R.C. Sproul called Chosen by God. And I just remember reading those two books, thinking to myself, who is this God? I've never heard, I, no, no one's ever talked about God in these ways. And I've been in Baptist churches my entire life. I've never heard a pastor talk about God in these ways, never. And I just remember thinking, I've been robbed, <laughs> you know, and, and, and I just remember thinking, their God is so much bigger than the God that I feel like I knew. This reminds me of a quote A.W. Tozer said uh, in his book, The Knowledge of God. He says, the view of God entertained among evangelicals these days is so low, so beneath the dignity of God, it constitutes idolatry. How important is it to know God rightly? Our our view of God has massive implications in life. If we do not have a high view of God, rest assured, we will have a high view of ourselves. There's no other alternative. At the very least, we will begin to construct an idea of God that fits inside our own theological framework. In a way, we will begin to create a God in our own likeness. And this is dangerous. If your theological framework is centered on lifting high the autonomy of man, then you will most certainly begin to marginalize the greatness, the vastness, and the sovereignty of God. You'll begin to think God actually owes you. And this is a very dangerous place to be. Therefore, we must uphold a high view of God that's explicitly shown to us in the scriptures. A high view of God enhances our understanding of his love and his mercy and his grace. The person that recognizes that they don't deserve it, They're the ones that are blown away by it. They're the ones that treasure Jesus the most. A high view of God promotes deep and authentic humility. Listen, the the man or the woman who recognizes that apart from God, I would be no telling where, nothing promotes humility the way that does. A high view of God strengthens a living and vibrant faith. A high view of God provides the resources necessary for times of suffering and affliction. A high view of God helps us to understand in our weakness, in the times when we have received that phone call from the doctor, and he says, you have cancer. You can still say, God is good. And those two realities aren't in opposition with one another. A high view of God elicits genuine and sustained worship of God to whom alone belongs all glory. And in closing, I'll say this. I know our deacons probably can begin moving to um, serve communion. God isn't simply overwhelming Job with raw power. But inviting him into an expanded point of view. God is displaying before Job a world in which his power is exercised with wisdom and care and loving discernment for the good of his creatures. God quite boldly shows Job the the perspective from which he views and governs his world. God is on Job's side. And he does take to his miserable comforters to task in this passage. It's clear, he does, even Job himself. In a real way, though, Job is not only one who's spoken Truly about God at times, is also spoken untruly about God. But the Lord's comfort isn't the comfort of a gentle consolation, it's a fiery comfort of a counter charge. God has never given a direct answer uh, to, to Job. And all his questions. And you will go through life and you're not going to have all the answers to all your possible questions. So why, why is it that this is me and why have I been dished this and that person's been, they've been given this and I don't have. We're not given all those answers. He's not told Job. Gods we don't he doesn't tell Job his dealings with Satan nor of God's ultimate purposes in permitting what he does instead he's given the one thing he needs which is God himself in a bold robust manner he reveals himself to Job which is an act Of mercy, God didn't have to do it, but he did it. And he does it for you and I. He does it for you and I. We live on this side of the cross, this side of the revelation of God. We don't have to sit and stand and look at the clouds to see the revelation of God. He's spoken to us in his word. We have his word. We can know and encounter this great, vast God. And he invites you. He invites you into his word to know him. So make this resolution in your life. Resolve to have a big view of God. When you do, you will find joy and life in the midst of the misery that comes along in a broken world. Let's pray.